Dun, 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 dun. So began one of the weirdest and most unexpected moments in a funeral that I have ever experienced. Let me explain. By the way, that's the opening notes to Benny and the Jets by Elton John. I assume most of you are familiar with the song. At the church I pastored in Texas, I was doing the funeral of a man who was a part of our church family. And we came to the part of the service where we were told one of his friends was going to play a song on the piano. And so as I'm sitting on the stage, I see this man start walking up from the back of the church. Comes up one of the aisles and he has uh, a suit coat thrown over his shoulder and he's walking to the front of the church with this kind of an over-the-top swagger. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? Like, what's his deal? And he sits down, he struts his way to the piano with his suit coat thrown over his shoulder and as he gets to the front of the church he just tosses and throws his suit coat through the air and it lands on the chairs in the front row so I'm sitting there in disbelief as this guy just strutted his way to the front of the church oozing with swagger and then he tosses his coat through the air like a rock star throwing something to their fans this is all in the middle of a funeral And then he sits down at the piano, and I'm expecting a hymn from this guy. Something like Amazing Grace, or It Is Well With My Soul. But that's not what we got. We got Elton John. He started in with the first few repetitive notes of Benny and the Jets. Dun, 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 dun. And I'm sitting there thinking, that in that that time it played... To play those notes, I'm like, that's Benny and the Jets. That's an Elton John song. He's actually playing Benny and the Jets. And he did. He sang the whole song, all of it, with passion. Like, she's got electric boots, a mohair suit. You know I read it in a magazine. Oh, Benny and the Jets. And he even did the little tag. I wasn't going to sing that part. I just rolled with it. He got to the end and he even did that little falsetto tag. Benny, 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 Benny and the Jets. And he goes through the whole song. I'm not sure why. (laughs) We think that the man who died liked the song. We're not sure. But all the swagger, the coat throwing, the way he played the song with passion as if he was Elton John playing at Wembley Stadium, I wasn't expecting any of that, especially at a funeral. I texted my friends back in Texas at the church and I said, the time has come for me to tell the story. And one of them replied, still cannot believe this, cannot believe this. We can't believe it happened. Well, that's kind of what happens in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. The prophet Elijah is going to throw his mantle, his suit coat, if you will, onto the unsuspecting Elisha. Elisha is just minding his own business, plowing the fields with his oxen, when all of a sudden he has a mantle or a cloak thrown over him. It's all so unexpected. 
And that's how God often works in our lives, isn't it? He does things that we don't expect. He intervenes in ways that leave us flabbergasted. He interrupts our lives in ways that we were never expecting. And so what do you do when God interrupts your life and does things that confuse you? Things that leave you baffled. Things that you weren't expecting. Well, you have to trust him. You have to start with the plenty of God. You have to start not by looking at your circumstances, not by trying to figure everything out. What's God doing? I got, it's like, it becomes a math problem. I've got to figure out what God's doing. You don't start there. You start by simply looking to who God is, by trusting his promises in his word. You don't start with your questions. You don't start with your fears. You don't start with your problems. You start with the plenty of God. Now, I get this idea from Ray Ortland Sr., who used to pastor Lake Avenue Church down in Pasadena. Here's what he said in a sermon that he preached on May 11th, 1975. He said, Jesus wants to express his fullness through you. Always begin your thinking and your planning and your deciding from the standpoint of Jesus' fullness in your life. Always begin with the plenty of God. Face life with all you have in Christ. Never face life from the standpoint of all the problems and all the needs and all the difficulties. Always begin with your standing in Christ. You have rivers of living water, Christ in you, fullness of grace and truth. That's what Jesus gives us. Isn't that good? Start with the plenty of God. Whatever you are facing in life, whatever you are facing today in your life that's very particular to you, start with the plenty of God. Don't start with your problem. Don't start with your issue. Don't start with your struggle. Don't start with your trial. Don't start with the broken relationship or the parenting issues or the money problems. Start instead with the plenty of God and that will recalibrate you. And that's what Elijah and Elisha will do in our passage today. They will learn that trust comes much easier when you start with the plenty of God and not all the unknowns in life. Trust comes quicker when you quit trying to solve the mystery of what God is doing in your life and instead you simply start with the plenty, the all-sufficiency of God. So 1 Kings 19, look at verse 19 and hear the word of the Lord. So he, Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following Elijah and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. 
So recall what we saw last week. The Lord appeared to Elijah on Mount Sinai at the cave where he had appeared to Moses. And the Lord wooed Elijah to pour his heart out to him in prayer. And so Elijah told Yahweh how he was the only one left in Israel who loved Jesus. He was the only one left who was serving him. But then the Lord told Elijah that there were actually 7,000 other believers in Israel who had not bowed their knees down to the false god Baal and had not kissed him with their mouths. In other words, there were 7,000 other people who had not worshipped Baal. 7,000 other people who did not love Baal with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so after hearing the word of the Lord, Elijah got an Uber to the wilderness of Damascus and he found Elisha. Elijah obeyed the word of the Lord. And those two words in verse 19 are very significant. Departed and found. Two very important words. Elijah went and did what Yahweh told him. So there's this humility now with Elijah that's seen here. There's no questioning on his part. There's no, but what about this, Lord? But why not that, Lord? How come, Lord? There's none of that here. Elijah simply does what the Lord says. But why does he respond this way? Well, it's as we saw last week. The Lord appeared to Elijah, not in the tornado or the earthquake or in the fire, but in the gentle, small whisper. It's Yahweh's grace that moved Elijah's heart and got it out of the funk that it was in. The gospel is what motivated Elijah to obedience. And so understand this, Grace. Mercy motivates ministry. It's God's mercy to you that should motivate you to love and serve others. What motivates us to obedience in the Christian life? What is it? Is it the law? Is it the demands of God's law? Is it the commandments of God? Is it you need to do more? You need to try harder? Is it, get your act together? Well, the answer is no. Should guilt and shame motivate us to obey God? No. Although some churches and pastors preach this way. Some pastors and some churches preach a message of guilt and condemnation, laying burdens on their people that they can't bear. As Steve Brown says, guilty people make people feel guilty. And you can tell how guilty a person really is by perceiving how guilty you feel in his or her presence. I fear too often the church has become an organization of guilty people with a guilty preacher standing in the pulpit telling guilty people they should feel guiltier. Will that kind of preaching make us obey? Will that make you obey? If I stand up here every week and tell you that you stink and you need to try harder and you're not doing enough, And you never read your Bible, and y'all don't pray. And you never give to missions, and you don't love Jesus as much as me. And y'all are just like the world, and you need to repent and get your act together. Does that make you want to obey? Does that make you want to do those things? No. It just makes you feel guilty. It loads you up with shame. It loads you up with condemnation. And you feel depressed. And then you just feel like giving up, right? Like, what's the point? If I can't ever measure up, what's the point? But what does make you want to obey? It's grace. It's the gentle whisper of Jesus. 
What makes disciples want to obey their Lord? It's the radical, free grace of God. On Mount Sinai, Elijah came to understand that God's commands are always rooted in grace, always rooted in his unmerited favor. Grace came, and then Elijah was told to go anoint those three people that we saw last week. So grace comes before law. Recall, Yahweh redeemed Israel, and then he gave them the law. See, grace always comes before law. The indicatives, the truths of the gospel come before the imperatives, the commandments, the things that we're supposed to do. So the dones come before the do's. What Jesus has done for you must come before what you do with him. We see this in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters, Paul is just saying, this is what God has done for you in Christ. And the last three chapters are, now go and do this. So if we want to see long-term, gospel-motivated obedience, it can only come from resting in what Jesus has already done for us and must not be driven out of fear of what we must do. Any obedience that is not grounded in and motivated by the good news of the finished work of Christ is not sustainable. You will putter out. If you're just trying to do the Christian life by pulling up your bootstraps and saying, I can do this, you will putter out. If it's not grounded in and motivated by what Jesus has done for you. And what Elijah heard on Mount Sinai moved him to obey the Lord and to go anoint Elisha. And where did it start? It started with all the grace and the mercy that he received on top of Mount Sinai. It started with the assurance that the Lord had 7,000 other children in Israel. It started with the plenty of God. But notice too here that Elijah doesn't get territorial. He doesn't get jealous about Elisha being the new prophet. He doesn't get possessive about ministry because Elijah knows that ministry is not about him. It's about the Lord. It's about Jesus receiving glory. It's not about building up his resume. It's not about having people praise him. It's not about getting 10,000 followers on social media. It's none of that. For Elijah, it's all about the glory of God. And that's what ministry is all about. It's not us getting glory. It's all about giving glory to Jesus. So look at verse 19. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elijah finds Elisha plowing in a field, and he threw his cloak or his mohair suit on him. And we know that Elisha knows the significance of having a mantle thrown on him by a prophet because he tells Elijah that he wants to run back home and tell his family first. So Elisha understands what's happening here. Elisha understands that this mantle toss meant that he was being called to and ordained to the prophetic ministry. 
And so Elisha wants to go home and tell his family. He wants to party. He wants to celebrate. Like the lyrics to Benny and the Jets. We'll kill the fatted calf tonight. So stick around. You're going to hear electric music. Sound, solid walls of sound. And so Elijah responds with a difficult Hebrew expression here. He says, go back for what have I done to you? Well, what does that mean? Elisha's like, I want to go home and party and celebrate. And Elijah says, go back for what, I, what, what have I done to you? Well, Robert Alter explains it best this way. He says, it seems more plausible not to construe these words as a rebuke for hesitancy on the part of Elisha, but as an assent. Why shouldn't you go back to take fond leave of your parents? I made no unreasonable demands of you. So contrary to what some preachers say, Elijah is not giving Elisha grief for wanting to go home and celebrate this new call to ministry and to say goodbye to his parents. I've heard preachers say, oh, he just wanted to go back. He was still attached to the security and safety of his life. He just couldn't let it go. That's not what's happening here at all. This is not a negative comment about Elisha. In fact, Elijah tells Elisha that he can do what he asked. Elijah says, let me go home. And Elijah says, go home. Elijah is giving Elisha permission to to go say goodbye to his family. So this is a good thing that Elisha is doing. It reminds us about two things about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is not a killjoy. And number two, Jesus cares for Elisha's family. So let's talk about these two things. Number one, Jesus is not a killjoy. Jesus has no problem with Elisha going home to his family to celebrate this new ministry position that he got. It would be wrong to not celebrate. It would be wrong to not rejoice with those who rejoice. Jesus loves to celebrate things, and we should too. Let me say that again so that you get a very clear picture of who Jesus is. Jesus loves to celebrate things And we should too. Scott Rideout, the president of our denomination, Converge, was here last year. And he taught a class on evangelism. And in that class, he said this. He said, what gets celebrated gets repeated. And one of our elders, Mike Jones, was there that day and has reminded the staff and elders of this continually. What gets celebrated gets repeated. And so in Elisha's case... As his family slaughtered all these oxen and as they ate tri-tip and brisket and steak, they were celebrating as a family that their boy Elisha was going into full-time vocational ministry. So this is a party and a celebration, what God's doing in Elisha's life. But as his family slaughtered all these oxen, and as they ate tri-tip and brisket and steak, they were also celebrating That God had not forgotten his people. There would be another prophet to give the word of the Lord to his people. And so even though the prophet Elijah was leaving the scene, God's word wasn't leaving the scene because Elisha would take over. And so as Elisha's family partied and celebrated and ate a bunch of barbecue, they were being reminded that Yahweh had not forsaken his people. God would still speak to his people through Elisha. 
And as they celebrated this fact, word would spread throughout Israel and it would get repeated and repeated and repeated. Because what gets celebrated gets repeated. And what gets celebrated here at Grace gets repeated. Last night we had the Operation Christmas Child Packing Party. We had 40 people there and we packed about 203 boxes, I think. And it was a great time to just say, look what God's doing at Grace and what He's going to do around the world. And so we want to celebrate that because what gets celebrated gets repeated. Well, the second thing that we can learn about Jesus from this passage is this. Jesus cares for Elisha's family. I mean, think how sad Elisha's mom and dad would have been if her son just disappeared. If right then he just walked away and took off following Elijah. He wouldn't show up for dinner. They would go out into the fields and find the 12 oxen unattended. And Elisha is nowhere to be seen. And then what? Mom and dad worry. What happened to our baby boy? And so we are not to see this as a negative thing that Elisha went home to tell his family. This is a good thing. It shows us that Jesus cares about Elisha's family. And so Elisha burns up the plow, and he cooks the oxen, and they party. I mean, this was a huge celebration. It tells us that Elisha came from a very wealthy family. They're rich. And by hitching his plow to Elijah now, Elisha is going to have to depend on and trust the Lord to provide for him. Elisha was leaving behind all of his security. He comes from a wealthy family. He's leaving behind all of his security. And he's going to now have to learn that discipleship means that we walk by faith and not by sight. Elisha would have to learn that even when he had nothing, he could trust Yahweh. And what's the best way to build your faith and renew your trust in Jesus? Start with the plenty of God. Don't start with your problems. Don't start with your troubles. If you do that, you will be overwhelmed. Instead, start with who your God is. With who you know God to be from His Word. Always begin your thinking. Always begin your planning. Always begin your deciding from the standpoint of Jesus' fullness in your life. Always begin with the plenty of God, with who God is. Paul Tripp says, I think we are motivated by fear, worry, dread, and anxiety much more than we realize. The decisions we make and the actions we take are motivated more often by avoiding what we fear than by the courage of faith. Courage results not from trusting yourself, other people, or your circumstances, All these things will fail you. Courage results from being in awe of the majesty of God. That worshipful worshipful fear that grips your heart when you are confronted with His holy grandeur. Because you are in awe of who God is, and because you know that this awesome one is in you, with you, and for you, you do not live in fear of people, locations, and situations. You see, just like Elisha, when you sign up to follow Jesus as a disciple, as a Christian, you sign up for an unpredictable life. I don't know if if anyone ever told you that when you became a Christian. They should have said, buckle up, because it's going to be a wild ride. 
there are going to be some really high highs and really low lows. When you sign up to follow Jesus, you sign up for an unpredictable life. You sign up for one unpredictable turn after another. You sign up for the unseen. You sign up for the unknown. And we see that here with both Elijah and Elisha. I mean, this was the life of an Old Testament prophet. You wonder where your next meal is going to come from. And what does God do? Back in 1 Kings 17, God has ravens bring you barbecue sandwiches. And then God has a flat, broke widow who has very little food left in her cupboard, and she feeds you for many days. And then as we saw earlier in this chapter, the angel of the Lord makes you pancakes. That's the life of an Old Testament prophet. And that's the life of a New Testament disciple. So you must be able to bear with uncertainty if you are to follow Jesus. Let me say that again. You must be able to bear with uncertainty if you are to follow Jesus. This means that there will be many times in your life where you have to trust Jesus and it will be hard. There will be many times when Jesus calls you to do something and you have to follow him in obedience, not knowing where the provision is going to come from. That's Elisha here. And so uncertainty will come and knocking on your door when you follow Jesus. And your plans will fall through. Unforeseen circumstances will occur and they will captivate your heart. And it will be hard to sleep and hard to eat and hard to focus. And when those times come, you will be tempted to fear because your earthly security is being threatened. Like Elisha. Remember, he comes from a wealthy family. And he's being called to the unknown. But here's the good news of the gospel. God is in control. And he is with you as you face those uncertainties. You can trust him. And so, yes, you sign up for one unpredictable turn after another when you sign up to follow Jesus. And yes, you sign up for the unseen and the unknown. And it's difficult, and it's a fight of faith. I mean, believing what we cannot see is hard, right? But you are not alone. You get Jesus. As Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says, when we are most alone, we are not alone. When we are most alone, we are not alone. Jesus is with you wherever he calls you to. And whatever he asks you to do, even when it feels hopeless or you are uncertain about what will happen next. And so discipleship is signing up for the unseen and the unknown. It's signing up for a lot of uncertainty, but you are never alone. And when you find your plans and directions getting redirected and rerouted, it is then that you realize who is really in charge. And it's God and not you. Before we begin to understand what God is doing in our lives, our circumstances can look all wrong. That's what Elijah thought earlier in the chapter. It all seems so wrong, right? Things didn't go as planned. Victory on Mount Carmel, and then a 17-mile spirit-empowered sprint to Jezreel, and yet, even after seeing all that, Ahab didn't repent. And then Jezebel, Ahab's wife, wanted to kill Elijah. She wanted him dead. It all seems so wrong, right? 
And that's why the Christian life is a fight of faith. It's a fight to remember that Jesus is in control and that he is with us. And that's a very simple truth, but you know what? We struggle to believe it, don't we? I mean, really believe it. So we shouldn't throw Elijah under the proverbial bus here because we all do what he does in this chapter. We pout, right? We stress. We unbelieve our theology. We get amnesia and forget who we are in Christ. And we let our circumstances control our hearts and not who we know God is. And then what do we do? Then we start blaming God. We blame a good, caring God who has been nothing but good to us. And we start blaming Jesus when things go south. And if you're like me, what I'm really after in life is a sense of spiritual security that guarantees me that nothing will ever knock me off my feet again. That's what I really want. I want to reach a place of security and be guaranteed that nothing in life will ever knock me off my feet. And so what lurks deep down in my heart is a desire for my security to replace my need for Jesus. So deep down, if I'm honest, and I hope that's what you're looking for in a pastor, if I'm honest, I want to reach a place of security in my life where I no longer need Jesus, where I'm not desperate, where I'm not needy. But that day will never come, will it? And until we realize that grace, we'll never be free. Being needy, being dependent, being desperate, just like Elisha is about to walk into for the rest of his life, that's how the freedom and the security comes. Because then you have nowhere else to go but to Jesus. And anytime your back is against the wall and Jesus is with you, that's actually the safest most secure place to be. And the sooner we learn this, the sooner we'll really start living. That's freedom. Freedom is having no one else to go to, nowhere else to turn but to Jesus. And disciples continually need to be reminded of that, and churches continually need to be reminded of that. To just say, Jesus, we have nowhere else to go. And so when everything in your life seems out of whack, when it feels hopeless, when it seems like you just can't catch a break, Jesus is with you. And Elisha was going to learn this. God was basically telling Elisha, leave all of your security behind. Everything that you've trusted in your whole life. And trust me. In the middle of your struggles, in the middle of the consequences of your sin, your sin or someone else's sin, in the middle of all the unstable and unpredictable moments in life, in the middle of your family drama, you need to remember that the all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing God is with you. And most of us affirm this truth, right? But some of us need to be reminded of it again today. You need to be reminded that though everything seems wrong in your life, though everything seems out of control, Jesus is with you right now and he is working behind the scenes to bring good out of the mess that has preoccupied your heart. And that means you can trust him.
Ed Welch says, God prefers the impossible. Although he often cares for our needs before we know we have them, his mighty acts are showcased best against the backdrop of insurmountable odds. And that's what Elisha's going to learn here. He's going to have to leave behind a family and face insurmountable odds to follow Yahweh, to trust Yahweh. This was like us when we went to seminary. I left a great job down in L.A. working in Hollywood. I worked in movies and videos and commercials. It was awesome. Got paid a lot of money to do very little work. Sometimes it was feast or famine. Sometimes you didn't work for two weeks. But then you could work two days and make up. I left a great job to go to seminary. And so this was us, a life of faith. Just like Elisha here. Leave behind your security and go trust me. And so as I was praying about this this morning... I remembered a journal entry I wrote from seminary, and I've read this before, but let me read this in case someone needs to be encouraged today, okay? We were dirt poor just trying to make ends meet. This is from my journal. 14 February. We are broke, waiting for our paycheck so we can buy groceries, trying to pray more specifically about our needs. Did you catch that? We were broke on Valentine's Day. 15 February, God answered our prayers. There was a ton of leftover pizza from church. Dinner provided. Get paid tomorrow. Two days later, 17 February, we have $170 left to last until next payday. Praying he provides. The next day, 18 February, God provides. A letter came in the mail today stating that we had overpaid the doctor on one of our visits with the kids. We will be getting a $100 check this week. God is faithful. God is faithful. Insurmountable odds do not phase Jesus. I love that about Jesus. His mighty acts are showcased best against the backdrop of insurmountable odds. And so Jesus says, insurmountable odds? Bring it on. Yes, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And so when you find yourself in many situations, facing many difficulties, and finding yourself with many needs, expect and anticipate Jesus to do something out of this world for you. Anticipate him to do something. When things seem hopeless, trust what God says over what you see. There's no way to change this reality. While we seek to follow God faithfully in this world, many times we will find ourselves in desperate situations and unpredictable moments that we would not choose. And God often leads us in this way, just like he led Elijah and took care of him every time. God leads us along these paths that we would not choose for ourselves And he leads us to these places because he has purposes for us that are far beyond us. He has purposes for us that are far beyond what we can see. Trust him. And so what many times appear as misfortunes, they later end up being God's mercies to us. It's just hard to see in the moment because trusting Jesus is hard. God is good at turning misfortunes into mercies. We just have to wait. And waiting on Jesus is a very common experience for disciples. We wait for direction because we don't know which way God is leading us. We wait many times for his purposes to be revealed to us. We wait for him to provide what we lack. And while we wait, what are we called to do? Trust. 
rest, believe, to believe again our theology, to believe that Jesus knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for you. You don't. You think you do. And he kindly grins. Uh, They think that's best for them. Wait till I knock their socks off. He's so tender with us when we're like, I want my way. I was talking with someone last week, and, and we were talking about how the fact that God, God lets us make real decisions. Sometimes he just, just doesn't drop information out of the sky and say, move to this city. And so we were talking about that, how we all desperately want to control our life and make every decision. And then when God comes and finally he's like, just make the decision. There's two choices before you. Choose. We don't like that, do we? And yet our whole life we want to control everything and make every decision. When God finally says, here's two very clear options for you, pick. We're like, I don't want to pick. What do you want me to do? Jesus knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for you. And you can trust him no matter what you're going through right now. And so how do you begin to trust him again? You start with the plenty of God. You start with what you know of God. You start with what his word says. Whatever is happening in your life, face life with all that you have in Christ. Never face life from the standpoint of all of your problems and all of your needs and all of your difficulties. Always begin with your standing in Christ. Always begin with the plenty of God. And so what I want us to do tonight at our preliminary budget meeting is to start with the plenty of God. I want us to start reading Romans 8.26 and read it to the end of the chapter. And then we'll talk about our budget for next year. Let's start with the plenty of God. So 1 Kings chapter 19 could really be reduced to two simple words. Trust God. Elijah is learning that he has to trust God. Elisha is learning that he has to trust God. The original audience in exile in Babylon is learning that they have to trust God. And you and me, we're learning again that we have to trust God. And so 1 Kings 19 is for people who haven't been trusting God. That's good news, isn't it? 1 Kings 19 is for people who haven't been trusting God. That means that this book is for us. Because sometimes we really stink at trusting God, right? We're like the lyrics to Benny and the Jets. It says, hey kids, plug into the faithless. Maybe they're blinded. That's us. We've we've plugged into our own faithlessness and our blindness and we're trying to do life. And Jesus is just there saying, come on back. 1 Kings 19 is for people who haven't been trusting God. Sometimes I really stink at trusting God. I can admit that. 1 Kings 19 is for people who are needy and desperate. 1 Kings 19 is for people who have given their hearts to all the wrong things, to all those enslaving idols, and who are now beginning to see clearly again that Jesus is better. And so the message of Jesus, our tender Savior, from 1 Kings 19 to us today is simply this. It's not too late. So you haven't been trusting me? Okay, let's start over today. Trust my promises. Trust me. I love insurmountable odds. You can trust Jesus, right? 
After all, he loves you. He cares for you. And he's the one who lived a perfect life for you. He never sinned for you. And he died a perfect death for you in your place for your sins. And then God raised him from the dead. And so that's who's speaking to you today, Christian. Jesus is speaking to you. Jesus, the one who lived and died for you. Jesus, the one who defeated death and the grave and came back to life. He came back from the dead. The one who, with his back against the wall, facing the insurmountable odds of the grave, came back from the dead. And he says to you today, to you whose trust in him stinks many times, he says, it's not too late. So you haven't been trusting me? Okay, let's start over today. Trust my promises. Trust me. I love insurmountable odds. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're so caring and understanding. We have your word. We know what it says. We know what you've done for us, and we struggle to believe still. We believe. Please help our unbelief. Thank you that you're so caring. And so gentle with us. Help us as individuals and in our families and as a church family to trust you for whatever you have planned for our lives the rest of this year and all of next year and then after that. Help us to rest. You've got it all under control. And then may we worship you. And since we're not stressed out about our own lives... Would you then enable us to go love and serve our neighbor? We can focus on other people and quit obsessing with what's happening in our world. So help us to rest and relax and then go love and serve others. For your glory, Jesus. It's all for your glory and not ours. In your name we pray. Amen.